growing up on the savannah, this calf will face many dangers. But a battle this big is incredibly rare. Two evenly matched testosterone-fueled bulls. An ambitious production, which involved shooting 1,800 hours of footage, lensed on seven continents and with over 1,300 days of filming. National Geographic's Hostile Planet is a six-part documentary that took the filmmakers to some of the most remote locations on Earth. And in doing so, they tell the story of how animals have had to adapt to survive in continually changing hostile weather and environmental conditions. Its executive producers include Bear Grylls, who also served as the host and narrator, and Guillermo Navarro, who is also a director and the Academy Award-winning cinematographer of Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. Navarro joins us today to discuss the making of Hostile Planet. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Guillermo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So let's start at the beginning. How many years ago did you get involved and what prompted your involvement in the series? This was like three years ago when I had my first conversation with National Geographic about this. And it was a time where National Geographic was reaching out to filmmakers to participate in their programming. And I jumped to the opportunity because in my story, I started my career doing documentaries. And part of the success I had in the feature world was that I was able to bring part of that know-how of dealing with reality and truth into that. And that allowed me to do parallel realities, Pan's Labyrinth, for instance, where there's a very strong truth, real reality that allows you to then venture off. And then after many years of doing feature work and dealing with dramatic arcs and building sequences with film language, when I had these conversations with Nat Geo about how could I insert myself in a project like this. So I pitched many ideas, and one of them, the most important for me, was that things had to change also not only on the what, but in the how, and that it was important to transform the narrative of the natural history films. And because I believe that the visual language is the language of our time, we cannot imagine a single day of our lives without it. And this was also with the intent of address younger generations, etc. So the visual language is what is there and is widely received. And then all my experience of film language is what I do and what I do well. And so for me, it was very important to bring then that experience into the and change the narrative. For instance, the traditional way was to have a host that narrates everything. Right. And the visuals are illustrating that text. So for me, it was important to make less of the voiceover, not make it the center of the narrative, and have the film language, the visual language take over. And then this was possible because today's technology allows us to be thinner and smaller in our footprint. What I wanted is to stop just having a vision of seeing the animal behavior from the distance, 
observing them as if you're watching a fish tank and to break that rule, to break that. And for that, you need to get close to the event, close to the animals and have the amount of shots that are not only looking at them, but looking at what they're looking and taking what they're looking in, like if it's a character. So that way, with building sequences, we could build a dramatic arc of what it's like to be them and make them a character. So by the use of the film language, then it becomes an immersive experience. It becomes an experience to be with them. And that, I think, is the most important part of my contribution and maybe the most important part of how to go about today in today's world in telling the stories. Now, on this particular project, there were close to 250 people involved in the different crews that went out. So did you meet the key? Yeah, I mean, what I would do is that I, all this that I just told you was, uh, you know, a result of many conversations and many pushback, you know, go back and forth, etc. because everybody has been doing it for many years in one way. And here I am trying to rattle the cage a little bit on this. And all these directives were also then passed by the showrunner into the teams. He was the one that was more in direct contact with them. They understood the need to be able to build sequences and to tell the story visually. Everybody was engaged with that. Now, when you got involved, did they already have the framework that they knew they wanted to make Hostile Planet, or was the project your idea? There was an idea And then we started talking about how that could be about. And then the idea of dividing it in different environments, for instance, came out from those discussions, as opposed to attacking everything at the same time. What happened also is that we sat down in London and we started assessing how these films have been done throughout the years. And all this came from the premise that a polar bear 50 years ago, when this film started being made, has nothing to do with a polar bear today. The planet has evolved very rapidly, and they don't have an opportunity anymore to adapt in this academic sense of you know becoming amphibious or growing a neck. There's no chance for that. That takes hundreds of years. So it's really dealing with surviving. And the tremendous effect of climate change is affecting their lives in daily basis. So we wanted to capture that and to educate and create awareness of what it's like to be them now. So it all came together like that. What were some of the most difficult animals or sequences to capture? Well, traditionally, the snow leopard is one of those, like, the impossible things to do. But that is traditionally the hardest animal to capture. So the fact that you can see that chase and the drop of 200 feet in the mountains and hit the rocks endless times and not letting go of his prey was a miracle. I mean, it happened to to have it in front of where the team was. So when you say how difficult, they're all difficult. And risky, they're all risky. In the episode of Mountains, for instance, when the geese are nesting in this rock structure that is 400 feet up, Mm -hmm. the animals were not a danger for the crew. It was the fact that they had to be like them in that piece of rock doing all those shots. I mean, imagine the guy that is in the river and a jaguar comes about. You don't freak out, you're photographing him. And then the jaguar goes in the water where you are. And not that being enough, he kills a a caiman and pulls him out of the water. And you're there in the water. And that's like, oh, how lucky I am. The experience is very extreme. What do you hope the viewers will take away after seeing the series? Well, I think that since this is an experience and it's an immersive way to look at the issues... I think we're going to have a strong impact with the use of the visual language. And the younger generations will take it in 
strongly because you're connected to the drama of the animals. So the point is to create awareness that they're part of this planet and they have rights as well, just like us of this planet. And we're pushing them, you know? we're pushing to extremes. And it's very hard for them to do it. And they're the heroes of the story. And we have to learn from them and do our part. Could you tell us about capturing the production sound? Oof. You know, as much as technology has evolved tremendously visually, because we can be very far away and capture something, but sound is a little behind on that. So in order to capture real sound, the microphone has to be there. I can be photographing those windows that are behind you a mile away, but the sound will not capture anything there, unless you can plant and then know that you need it there, etc., etc. So a lot of the sound is actually incorporated in sound effects with a score. So the score becomes the one that incorporates what is that environmental sound, unless you were lucky enough to capture something. So we have sounds many times recording, but you cannot count that you're gonna collect so much sound the way you collect images. As you did the research and as the story came together, what was the most surprising thing you learned? Well, many things. I mean, for instance, once we defined that we were gonna do six episodes per environment and we grounded the environments, the scope of the project became real. You know, it was so big. Imagine like uh, one of these enormous wheels that have different axes and they're moving in different directions where everything has to like kickstart because we have a deadline that at that time seemed very far away, but it was not. And the amount of research that had to be done, finding which and where the animal behavior that would speak to our interests would be. Sometimes you would have to go in different seasons to the same place. So then... We started venturing and sending teams to the ground on specific areas. And we were finding things that we had to experiment. We were not following the traditional procedures. So it was not enough just to shoot the animal. You had to actually find the other shots that put together things, which is you know, much more difficult and risky and all that. You know? Because now you have to get in there. And the story takes us to the Arctic, it takes us to the desert, it takes us to the depths of the ocean, some very challenging conditions. Yes, challenging, and not only in terms of the conditions of what the environment offers, but you have to imagine that a team that is in the Himalayas waiting to find a snow leopard, they have to survive three or four weeks like a snow leopard in the wind, in the cold, in the this, in the altitude, and it is very hard just to be there. And then when suddenly the snow leopard appeared that any normal human being would run away, these guys actually have to now find a way to get close to him, find the shots, wait, be very patient, and have luck to be able to capture him. Now, I know there were drones involved. What were some of the other tools that the cinematographers used in order to capture these Everything images? that is available today, which means smaller cameras, very sensitive cameras, where you can shoot in dark places, a level of resolution that is very long lenses, and the cameras that were used to you know, shoot this in years ago, then you can move the camera. And moving the camera is one of the essential aspects of the film language, so you have to be with them. So there are some rigs that are stabilized, like with gyros, and you can be running with a camera and the shot will be very well preserved in terms of the motion and with a proper purpose of the motion. So we used everything that is available. We used all these rigs with gyros to move around. We used cranes, we used cables, we used the drones, anything to allow us to put the lens where it had to be. But you also had some pretty harsh temperatures that the teams were working in. Yeah, all the definition of the environments were defined by that. Where's the coldest? Where's the hottest? Where's the wettest? 
Where's that? You know, it, it's so like just that. keeping the cameras just dry keep, and, and the people, just keeping people alive and engaged and carrying the equipment and, and having the equipment perform. It's a very big task. How did the team capture the underwater footage? Well, with the underwater gear and things that you could move also the camera down in the water. And they also had equipment to be very deep. There's a part of the episode of Oceans where, you know, shot like I don't know, 100 feet down. That's the part I was thinking of so, when I so asked, right? So it's uh, things that you're, the equipment goes there, you have to light, you have to, um, like the script session, uh, the sequence, it, it takes place at night. Very, very complicated. So you're seeing everything through monitors. You don't necessarily be able to be there at the depth. We have like sliders to move the camera in the water or booms like mini cranes. And then the old diving and moving the camera. And then also there was a very good use of drones where you could be chasing the wave or chasing the group of orcas that are going as a group. And then the camera's right there. Like you're doing like almost like an over the shoulder of the orca, but then that's done with a drone. The important thing is not only that the technology and the tools were available, but they were available to a good use with a visual narrative going. Because then the emotion and the, it has a purpose in the narrative. It's not just moving the camera. What things to have the tool to move it? But once you introduce the film language as the primary narrator of this, then they have a sense of purpose. And then the tools and the technology are working for you. And that's one of the biggest challenges as a filmmaker. People tend to be working for the technology and working for that. But all those things should be at your service, not you at the service of the machine. Now, each episode was divided. You had jungles, you had desert, you had again, the polar regions, but there was so much material. Was there a basic script that the editor was starting with? Or how did the story come together? after? No, there was basic research. And then once we defined which of those pieces were going to make the cut, then we started working on making use of all those shots and putting the sequences together. For instance, one of my favorite sequences is in the episode of Oceans. There are two there. We see a turtle being born, and we are with her, and she's our character, right? Yes. And she's adorable. And then suddenly becomes like a sequence of Dunkirk, where the danger, and she realizes, and we have shots of her taking in what's happening, and the determination of getting to the water with all the possible adversity of all that army of air force that's happening and the alligator and uh, everything against him. And he's just born. Three days of digging and this Olive Ridley turtle is free. But not safe until she gets to the sea. Where early life evolved where nearly 80% of animals still live. Of all the hatchlings born this year on the Costa Rican coast, only 10% will make it. So that is a great example of what you can build with, with the right shots that connect you. So you are emotionally engaged and involved with that turtle to make it. And once he makes it to the water, then the, oh, the journey starts. But a very small percentage of them actually make it to the water. 
So it's, 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 it's brutal. But that is one great example of building a sequence, a dramatic art of this incredible turtle that becomes our hero. And in another one, we watch a penguin. Yes. The penguins are always like the favorite animal of everybody, and they have incredible societies, and they develop incredible emotional relationships with their partners and their kids. And the amount of effort that they have to do to keep them alive is unbelievable. So all those things are a tremendous mirror of what it's like to be us as well. No, what we go through in life. Another sequence that I love in Oceans is the sequence of the orcas, where we're chasing those orcas. This orca pod comes here every year. They're led by a matriarch. She could be 70 years old. For a pod to specialize in hunting fish, this is an unmissable event. Herring. Billions of them. More fish here than people on the planet. And they go into this incredible school of herring. And because they work as a team, they separate from the very big mass, a smaller like sphere and the herons are swimming in that, and everything's in motion. It's very hard to actually attack them. So with their tails, they hit it, or they create a, like a shock wave, and then 30, 40 herons drift off the dynamic of the school, and they will eat one by one, like in a dance choreography. And then here comes the other group of whales, which are bigger. And in one scoop, they take 200 pounds of herring. So you see how the impact of one predator then the other one is escalating and then the biggest one us shows up and then there's a net that boom pulls the school off so that is a sequence that connects all the dots of what's happening how the oceans are overfished they go at it with all kinds of technology whether they know where they are it's not that they go fishing to see what they get they know where they are they get tons every time they go at it and the ship is a factory and you know by the time he docks it's cans of cook herring so it illustrates what it's like to be them what's our role what's next on your plate the next one i would love to keep doing this and i'm in conversations to direct a feature maybe next year so i'm working on that can you tell us anything about no, it? No, unfortunately, it's very bad. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to do those things. I'm going to jinx it. But uh, things are in motion. Yes. And you'd like to do more with National Geographic? Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you.